Now you can sit. <laughs> the first service, she actually had people sit, and the whole time we're, we're all of us. That's impossible to sit down for that. Well, like I said, we have several announcements this morning. I wanted to save that until more people are in the room. Just this season is just full of stuff. And so uh, pull out your your, uh, family bulletin there, and and it's just chock full of things that are going on, times for Christmas programs and that sort of thing. A couple of I want to highlight, though. Um, Well, first of all, I want to welcome the Rosses. Are you in this service also? Yeah, they're back in the back. The Rosses are missionaries from Mexico. are back there with their new little baby. And uh, the the uh, table with the uh, the information about the mission trip, by the way, in, in March, we're going as many of us as possible, whole families. We'd like the whole church just to close the door, empty out down to to Mexico. But uh, in in uh, March, so they will the, the, it used to be out there, but the Christmas trees in the way. So the bulletin board back there and they can answer some questions about that trip. But we want to welcome back them. And so go greet them and their little, new little baby. Um, just stuff that's going on. Um, Lisa gave me the note about the Zumba class, which was advertised to start this next week, but they've pushed it back a week. So the first class will be on the 15th and uh, the first class will be free and kind of a sample thing. And she put in bold letters here, women only with an exclamation mark. So I guess she doesn't want us guys crashing the party. But anyway, right over there in the youth uh, hall Zumba class on the 15th. Um, women's ornament exchange this Tuesday here, just coming up in a couple of days at seven o'clock right out here. And then the, over by the kids check in desk, there's a giving tree for our missionaries and, uh, some little things you can take off, give by a gift, bring the gift back. And we want to uh, bless them. Um, the music program, um, music concert, uh, Christmas program will be, uh, next Sunday evening at six o'clock. And then Christmas Eve, which is Saturday this year, six o'clock again, trying to make everything at six so it's less confusing. Um, and then Sunday morning, Christmas morning, we'll have only one service at 10 o'clock. Um, just some exciting news about the new building over there. You've heard update after update after update. Uh, we had an inspection on Thursday and the guy said, OK, if you can complete these whatever five or six things, um, by Monday afternoon, then um, I should be able to check it off and give you occupancy. And so Monday at one, tomorrow at one o'clock, whatever you're doing, drop to your knees and pray that uh, he'll check that off for us and we'll begin occupancy over there. We have groups that are just absolutely lined up waiting to use that facility, which is exciting, not only because uh, the rental money can help us pay for the renovations, but every single person that crosses the threshold there is fair game to tell them about Jesus Christ. And so um, be praying that, that will happen tomorrow at one o'clock. Um, by the way, I want to recruit a couple of groups of people as we move into using that building. One is uh, if you would be willing to maybe once every other week be what I'm going to call an evening host. We're going to have groups in there that are going to be from like from five to nine. But uh, toward the end of that, I'd love to have one of us um, every evening there just to greet people there's the bathroom, that sort of thing. Here's how church works. And then shut the lights off and close the doors when, when they leave. And so I, if we could get a group of 10, 12 people, then we could do it not as frequently and it wouldn't be some burden, burdensome. Also, if you have the gift of uh, cleaning bathrooms, um, we want to try to put together a group of volunteers that there's no janitorial staff, you know, so at some point we're going to have to like sweep up and do those kinds of things. So if you'd be willing to do either one of those, um, just see me or call Lisa at the church.
Well, uh, as we get into uh, the lesson this morning, I want to tell a story first. And I need the assistance of my, my lovely assistant, Kim, to tell this story. Um, many of you, I'm sure all of you, have heard the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, right? Nod your head. We've all heard that. Okay. Well, I'm sure, I'm confident that few of you have heard the story of Loldigox and the Beethrares. Is that true? Well, you're going to hear that this morning. So, Tunce upon a wime, there was a giddle laurel with gong lolden hair. Thus, she was known as Loldigox. Well, Dunway, Loldigox med to her souther, I want to go to a, for a walk in the woods. So she got her picnic basket and she saved some manwiches and found some apples and ananas and loaded up that basket and went out into the woods for a walk. Well, all day long she enjoyed trocking the whales and flicking powers and looking around the forest at creation and having a great time. Well, after all day long, she began to get Terry fired. And so Lodigox looked around where she placed where she right messed. And so she looked and looked and looked. And over on the edge of the woods, she saw a loot kittle called Glabin. And it looked very inviting. So Lodigox went over to the cog laban and she climbed the stairs up to the punt forch. And she looked and, and she was bold. And so she docked on the door. Nobody answered. And so Lodigox peered into the window and couldn't see anything. So she docked on the door one more time. Still no answer. And so Lodigox got very bold and uh, tried the door and it was open. And she went on in. Well, as soon as she went in, she saw just a, a rig boom with a Tig Babel. And she walked over to the Tig Babel and noticed that there were three sace pleadings, each with a boop sole full of moat eel. And so she went to the, the, uh, church, uh, the, the church fair. She dat sounds, picked up the poon and book it tight. But it was ooh taut. So Loldigox went to the check snare, that sounds picked up that boon and put a tight, but it was coo told. So finally, Lodi Gox went to the chask lair, that sounds picked up that poon, book a tight, and mm, it was rust jite. So Lodi Gox ate that whole boot sole full of moat eel. And then she got very full and began to get slary veepy. So Lodi Gox looked around where she find a place where she might make a tap. And so she looked over there, and in the corner of the, the big room was a care stace leading up to the flecken store. And so she stymed the clairs, docked on that nor, still didn't hear anything, and so she opened up to find a red boom. And in the red boom were bee threads. So Lodigox went over to the burst fed, Dade Lown, but it was hoo-tard. So Lodigox went to the Beck's Ned, Dade Lound, and it was so toft. So finally, Lodigox went to the Bass Led, Dade Lound, and <clears throat> what was it? Rust Jite. And she finally fell asleep. Well, Ween Mile, the family affairs that lived in the Cog Lab and was coming home from a wicknick in the Puds. There was Bapa Pear, Bama Mare, and Biddle Lady Bear. And they walked up to their cog lab and climbed up to the punt forch. And, and Bapa Pear noticed that something was amiss because the door was ajar. 
But they went in over to the Tig Babel and, and Bapa Pear went over to uh, Biz Chair and he looked down and he said, Somebody's been eating my moat eel. And Bama Mayor went over to Cherb- uh, her, you know, her chair, whatever. And, uh, and uh, she said, somebody's been eating my moat eel. And finally, Biddle Lady Bear went over to, to Chilio and, and he said, somebody's been eating my moat eel and it's go on. Well, they wondered who in the world could have done this. So they looked around and they only thought, well, maybe they went up to the, the red boom. So they steined the Claire's up to the Fleckensaur into the red boom. And they looked over there and Papa Pear went over to Bizhead and he looked down and said, somebody's been beeping in my sled. And Bama Mare went over and she said, and somebody's been beeping in my sled. And Bit of Lady Bear went over and he said, and somebody's been beeping in my sled and she's hill steer. Well, Loldygocks looked up. Because they were looking at her, and she looked up, and she was scared that she bumped out of Jed, weeped out of Lindo, and ran into the roars as fast as she could. And the beef rares never saw her again. Event. <laughs> Thank you, lovely assistant. By the way, I, t- I was going to tell Jen that for the Christmas, ho- I-, I wonder why she didn't invite me to tell. Twas it not, twas it the cry before Nismus and all who the throuse. Not his teacher was curing, not even a nouse. The hawking were stung by the kidney with chair in the nose of St. Nicholas. Zoom over there. Okay, but anyway, let's get on with it. You might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything besides being a fun story? Well, it has to do with everything that we're talking about today. Um, it's a fun story. But the moral of this story, the moral of this lesson actually is that see we're of a backward ginking thought or we serve a backward thinking God. You know, Jeff, for the last few weeks, has been talking about how do we integrate? How do we make sure that God and our relationship with him is present and and within every facet of our life? How do we make sure that God is in our work, in our play, in our relationships in Monday morning and Tuesday morning and not just on Sunday morning. And, and he talked a couple of weeks ago about um, not conforming to this world. And then last week, we remember you had, we had a couple of our, our own people up here who have, have figured out a pretty good way of integrating God into their workplace. And they did a good job of sharing their story. And, and throughout this whole thing, there's this, been this thread that there's no such thing as secular, right? There's either sinful or there's sacred, right? And it, it might sound like kind of a soapbox that Jeff is on and I'm continuing, but we, we want to just keep pounding that away. And, and so he's labeled this series following the leader. So if we all agree that Jesus Christ is our leader, how in the world do we make that practical? How do we follow him in our everyday lives? And uh, I hope that uh, I'll get the chance to, to speak every once in a while as as like today, like Jeff and Deb are suffering for the Lord at Disney World. And uh, we're here. But anyway, uh, every once in a while, I hope to speak. And you'll, I think you'll get to, lo- to, learn, to know me a little bit more. And you'll, one of the things you'll learn about me when I speak is that in every lesson, sermon, um, I want to answer that question, how does this impact me? How does this become real for me tomorrow? You know, it's, it's easy uh, to, to hear it from 
uh, the point of view. And when I'm out there and I'm hearing Jeff speak or whoever's speaking and, and it sounds easy, it sounds so eloquent and it sounds, oh, yeah, I could do that. But then then you start to answer, how in the world do I do that tomorrow morning at the office? How do I do that on the racquetball court? How do I do that at school? How do I make it practical and every day? And I, and I like to answer those kinds of questions. I like to make it specific. So today we want to further explore that. How do we serve? How do we worship? How do we get to understand such a whackbird ginking thought? Because it seems like God's economy is so upside down from ours. It seems like as soon as I think left, he says right. As soon as I think up, he says down. How in the world do I figure this Christian thing out. You know what? You know what is funny, and this, I don't. It might not be funny to you, but it, it made me laugh out loud when I was working on this in the office over there. That oh, by the way, another thing that you'll learn about me is that in every uh, lesson I try to insert a Kevin, you're a moron story in. And in fact, uh, the church that we came from, the the people in the church got to you know every every week they'd come and say, oh, I wonder what the Kevin you're a moron story is going to be this way because I I try in in my attempt at making it real, I bust myself too, and I did that in the office over there. I was thinking, you know, I was I was trying to name name this and come up with a cute thing so that we would all remember it and, and practicing over and over. See where of a whacker ginking thought, see where of a whacker, and and it dawned on me that the whole premise of my sermon was upside down. The whole premise was an indictment of what I was talking about. I busted myself because it dawned on me that we do not serve a backward thinking God. In fact, he loves a backward thinking me. He's not the one that's backwards. He's not the one that's upside down. He's not the one that is thinking all goofy like. It's me. It's an indictment because it goes to our very core, goes to the foundation of who we are as a fallen human. And it goes back to the very beginning. I mean, this is like Adam and Eve kind of stuff. Remember, Jeff talked about this uh, a few weeks, handful of weeks ago, that God created us perfectly. God created us as a perfect plan in his image on purpose for a purpose. He put us in a perfect place in a perfect situation. His plan was all set out. And he said, all you have to do is follow me and fellowship with me and commune with me and be my children. And then Satan comes along and does his thing. And incidentally, Satan is the sneakiest, dastardliest. And instead of causing havoc and doing lightning and thunder and and destroying us, what did he do? He whispered into our ear. And he whispered, hey, you should get more. You should get better. You should be more like him. And that whisper just seeded itself in our brains. And from that time on, we suffer from selfishness, from discord, from discontent. And that's become natural for us. It's not that we're serving an upside down, backwards God. It's that he is loving and trying to reconcile himself to a backwards, upside down thinking group of children. It was a perfect weapon of his, and it has worked over the generations perfectly because we still suffer with that, don't we? Our paradigm is shifted. Well, this morning I want to talk about four ways in in which we can try to right that ship, that we can try to make ourselves align with God. 
just a little bit better. Firstly, we can try to strive to be the last place winner. Our first upside down lesson this morning comes from a parable that Jesus told in chapter 14 of Luke. But I think McGee can tell it a little bit better than me. So let's watch this. We're trying to sit near the head of the table. He gave them this advice. If you are invited to a wedding feast, don't always head for the best seat. Then you shows up. The host will bring him over to where you are sitting and say, "Let this man sit here instead." Uh, here? And you, embarrassed, will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. <laughs> Do this instead. Start at the foot of the table, and when your host sees you, he will come and say, "Friend, we have a better place than this for you." Thus, you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For everyone who tries to honor himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be honored. If you want to be first, strive to be last. Now, Jesus several times told a parable similar to this. And uh, in God's economy, in his upside-down thinking, if we want to be first, we should strive to be last. And if the first time we try to be first, we'll become last. You know, parables were one of Jesus's favorite ways to communicate with us because they were so powerful. And, and we and we learn that way and, and we learn from stories in that way. But if if you're like me, sometimes I sit out there and I listen to those and and I think, OK, Jesus, you're, you're being like pretty dramatic here. There's no way I would you know, I wouldn't go to a wedding feast. That's ridiculous. And try to take the very best seat. And, and push grandma, grandma out of the way so I could so I could get the best seat. Yeah, that's over the top, don't you think? But it's not because we do that all the time. And I could tell another thousand Kevin, you're a moron stories related to that. Trying to be first, trying to get be best, trying to get the, you know, the best of whatever. And we do it all the time. If we would catch yourself and, you know, that's a challenge for you this morning is try to get your spiritual antennas up and catch yourself trying to get ahead of somebody else. I, uh, a couple of Kevin Moore, you're a moron stories. Um, I, uh, Kim gives me a hard time about doing this all the time. Be like in a, in a group situation or a party or a get together or something. And there's like a core of people talking and I'm kind of on the, on the outside. And so instead of, you know, just politely going up and just joining the conversation, what do I do? I kind of stand around the outside and talk really loud and try to tell a funny story, you know, and, and then, you know, and it always backfires on me. And Kim gives me the elbow and says, you're just being stupid. Cut it out, you know, or, or how about, have you ever done this? You, you're in a, in a meeting and the, and the boss is there and you want to get the, you know, the job for the, the new whatever. And, and uh, so you think, well, maybe if I sit next to him, he'll see me out of the corner of his eye and I'll get it. Not knowing that that's not going to work. It never does. I remember back when I was in junior high basketball and it's so, it's so stupid. It just, it makes me feel goofy even now to remember. But I was like, it, 
I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth on the on the depth chart, you know, the starting five. And then there was like two or three of us on the bench. And I kept thinking, well, maybe if I sit like way up on the edge of the bench, then he'll see me out of his peripheral vision and he'll put me in. It's so stupid to think about it now. But as a as a kid, you you'd do goofy stuff like that. Or how about at Thanksgiving? I love pecan pie. So if anybody, you know, hint, 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 if anybody wants to, you know, I love pecan pie. And so um, you go to the you go to the table and you just kind of hope inside that whoever cut it, you know, would like go kind of crooked so that there's one really, really big piece. And then the rest are and you have and I have this. I don't know if you do. I do have this just stupid little argument in my head. And it's so I mean, it's so immature and infantile, but it. I'm supposed to be like a mature person. But you look at that and, you, and you're going, OK, well, should I take the big piece? Because then I'm going to look like a hog or maybe I'll take the little piece and hope that the big piece is left. And, the, and you go, it's just so stupid. But it's because of that discontent and that selfishness that Satan whispered into our ear. That we have those little conversations in our head. God didn't intend for that to happen. If we want to be first, we should be last. When we say first place, we mean things like we want to be the fastest, the fastest to the finish line, the fastest to the promotion, the fastest to the lead in the play, whether or not it hurts somebody else to get there. When we may say first place, we mean, we mean most. I want the most toys. I want the most this. I want the best stuff. Whether or not that's fleeting and will go away. When we say first, we mean Best. I want the best perk. I want the best of this. Well, God, in his economy, he says, I also want those things for you. I want you to be first place, but I want you to be the fastest to lift somebody else up. I want you to be the fastest to let somebody else have the glory. I want you to be the fastest to take the back seat. I want you to rush to get that most humble seat. I want you to have the most thankfulness in your heart. I want you to be the best in your attempts to mirror my image. Secondly, and I had to practice this too. Secondly, God says we need to get giddy about giving instead of getting giddy about getting. Try to say that a few times. I had to practice that. We've all heard that since we've been little. Mom and dad, it's more blessed to receive than to give, right? No. Mom and dad said over and over and over and over, it's more blessed to give than receive. Incidentally, that's one of those scriptures or quotes from Jesus that really isn't a quote from Jesus in the Bible. Uh, much later, Paul said that Jesus said that. And I'm sure he did, but it's not in the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And on the outside, we agree with that, right? We say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that's awesome. We, well, that's, I get much more blessing if I give than receive. But on the inside, we're saying, yeah, right, I really would like to get more. Or I really would like, I mean, it's, it's too hard to give. And I bet you, if you would look at my and your checkbook ledger, our actions would show that we're on the saying, yeah, right, in what we write checks for. Is it, are we really, really agreeing that we get more blessing, we get more enjoyment, we get giddy about giving instead of getting giddy about getting. Again, it's that sinful nature 
that Jesus or that Satan just whispered into our ears and he said, you deserve more. And what's goofy is that he said we buy into that. We we believe that he said you deserve more. And especially we as 21st century Americans, us in this room, we buy into the fact that we think we deserve more, even though we have more than I'd say 95 percent of the world's population. You don't you don't have to travel very far to understand that we already have more than everyone else. But we spend our time thinking, well, you know, I think I need I think I deserve more. And the other lie is that that Satan talks us into believing that that we shouldn't have enough faith to to agree that God will provide back or that God would bless us when we are generous. You know, I want you to go through this um, little exercise with me. If you have to close your eyes and do so. But think of a person, maybe one, two, three people in your life. Think of a person who just oozes with the attributes that you admire. Somebody that you really look up to. Somebody that is, has a personality that is just attractive and just irresistible to be around. Somebody that you just think the world of. You have somebody that in your life? I have a handful. And I would be willing to bet you that that person or those people are also the most giving people that you know. Is that true? Kim and I have a couple of friends. One goes back a dozen or more years and one's more current. But Marty is one of them. And if he was in a room, you just can't help but want to be in a conversation with Marty. He is so likable, so um, talented, so at the same time humble. And Marty would give anything. He would give you his house if you didn't have a house. He'd give you his shirt off his back, literally, if you were chilly. Scott, the same way. You know, Scott doesn't make a lot of money. Scott's wife is in, in dental school. They don't have two pennies to rub together right now. Scott keeps saying, yeah, you just wait until she's out of dental school. They don't have a couple of pennies. But he, he says, but right now, but he would, he would write a check for all that's in his checkbook if that's what you needed. Those are the people I want to be around. God said, you need to get giddy about giving before you get giddy about getting. Kim and I have a story that also goes way back. Uh, we were probably in our third year of marriage, and, and those of you who have been married for a long time know what it's like to be early on in the marriage, and you're kind of immature trying to figure out, okay, how do we do life together, and, and we don't have any money, and so that makes it harder. And, but to this day, it's such, uh, I mean, it, it's, it almost brings tears to our eyes, the lesson that we learned, because we, would, we were in Auburn, Indiana, I was working at the YMCA. Kim was substitute teaching, and we just didn't have any money. And um, we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we do this marriage thing together? So every paycheck, twice a month, we would get a piece of paper, and we would literally write down. We'd sit at the kitchen table. We'd write down um, two lists, the expenses and the income. So we'd like, okay, we need uh, to pay the rent. We have to pay the car payment, gas, electric, phone, and list them all down. Okay, and then on the other column, we'd list the income. Okay, here's your paycheck, here's your paycheck. Get the calculator out. And that expense column was always more than the income column. And so every month, twice a month, we would be going, okay, get on your knees. Okay, God, how are you going to do this? We need to figure this out. How's this going to work? And it was always this frustrating, kind of scary time. Well, incidentally, at the same time, at the bottom of that income or at the bottom of the expense list, we would literally would write this down. It's so, I mean, to look back on it, it's so infantile but we would write that we would write down there offering 
or church or something. And we would literally say to out loud, I'm sure, okay, God, please let there be something left this month so that we can give an offering because we want it so badly. But did you get how we said that? Please, God, if there is something left over, we want to give you something. And it never, ever, ever worked. And so we would always feel guilty sitting in the chair, not being able to put anything in the offering plate. And uh, one day heard a, a, a sermon and the pastor was talking about giving and tithing and being unselfish and that sort of thing. And for some reason, that just God just spoke to both of us at the same time. And we went back home and we said, OK, God, put up or shut up. If you want it off the top, you're getting it off the top from now on. And I don't know how it's going to work, but you say it's going to work fine. Incidentally, in God's word, he says over and over and over again, do not test me. Have you said that to your children? Too? Don't you dare test me. God says that to us. Don't you dare test me. There's one time that he says, test me. It's okay. And it has to do with our finances. He says, test me. I'll give it back. Press down, shaken together. I'll pour it out. But you have to give it off the top. And so we agreed to, with God with that. And so we said to one another, doesn't make sense, doesn't add up, don't get it, don't know how it's going to work, but from now on, we're going to give off the top. From that day, there's always been enough. It never, it never added up. The calculator was always wrong. I don't know what was going on, but it always worked. God says you have to get to the point where you get more excited about giving than you do getting. And that is so backwards. From that little whisper that Satan whispers into our head. Thirdly, we need to get to the point to what we could do, what I call altitude driving. Okay, here's what the scripture says. This comes from Matthew chapter five, verse 43 to 47. It says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. This is Jesus talking. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is saying here, I want you to drive altitudinally. I want you to take the high road. It is easy. Everybody can do it to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No brainer. Duh. We all do that. But Jesus says, hey, not good enough. I think upside down. If you want to follow me, if you want to follow me as your leader, you must love your enemies and pray for them. He doesn't say I have to like them. He doesn't say I have to approve of how they treat me. But he says you must love them if you want to follow me. You know, it's easy to take the low road. But if I act like all the rest, if I settle for the lowest common denominator, if I blow off Jesus's and God's higher calling for me, I am not living up to my new creation status that he wants me to be or to live up to. Second Corinthians 517 says that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone away and the new has come. When Christ is in my life, I'm a new creation. He turns those things upside down for me. 
He wants me to work on those things. You know, it's okay. Well, I guess it's not okay, but it's, 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 it's expected at least for an old creation person to take the low road, to take to be a lowland driver, I guess. But to take the high road is to live up to God's expectations and his new creation status for me. Jesus said it doesn't take any guts. It doesn't take any obedience to take the low road. That's easy. My kids, they're grown now, but they've, they got so sick and tired of me saying that over, over their years when they were little. Sometimes you just have to take the, low, the high road, Logan. Whitney, sometimes you just have to, and they would just get, oh, yeah, whatever, Dad. They got so tired of me saying that. But I was thinking about what, what does a lowland driver act like? You know, somebody who takes the easy way, somebody who says, oh, yeah, it's good enough to love my neighbor and hate my enemy. What's that like? And I was thinking of a couple of ways that that's like. And I'm thinking, OK, being a lowland driver, it's like being excited that you can juggle one ball. OK, you're like doing this at home and you're like, hey, this is cool. I'm the man. And then you go, hey, Kim, get online and see where the next audition for America's Got Talent is. I'm going to win a million bucks. I'm going to be a headline in Las Vegas because I can juggle one ball. That's what it means to love your neighbor and hate your, mini, your, your enemy and be satisfied with that. It's like thinking that you deserve an A in English class because you can think of a word that rhymes with T. Duh. It's like expecting to get the, uh, the trophy for the script's spelling bee because you can spell the word cat. Okay, so you're up there, the script's spelling bee. The guy says... Number 175, cat. And you're like, um, can you use it in a sentence? And then he's like, the cat went meow. And you're like, um, okay, what's the language of origin? And it's like, um, English. And, and then you're like, okay. Cat. C-A-T, cat. And then you don't hear the bell. <laughs> I spelled. That's what lowland driving is like. Anybody can do that. But Jesus said, I don't want you to be anybody. I want you to be a new creation. I am turning your world upside down. I want you to drive up here. I want you to take the high road. I want you to love those who persecute you and pray for those who are mean to you. It's, it's easy to love the coworker who buys your lunch every Friday. Anybody can do that. It takes an altitude driver to love that person who works in your office and tells lies about you behind your back. Jesus says, I want you to be like that. Finally, fourth, I want us to all be losers. Can you be a loser with me? Let's all be losers. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If I'm going to lose my life, I save it. If I save it, I mean, it's more double, double speak from God, right? It's more upside down thing. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a couple of layers happening here. It's like the onion thing with Shrek. There's layers to being a loser, that we can all be losers. 
first layer, I think, is, is more surface, of course. And the first layer says that if I want to follow Christ's example, sometimes, frequently, I need to give up creature comforts and convenience in order to gain deeper satisfaction and meaning. Sometimes I need to lose my life, my convenience, in order to save it and get more satisfaction and deeper meaning in my life. Sometimes I need to sacrifice watching the bingo game in order to play catch with my son outside. Sometimes I need to sacrifice that golf game in order to put in the new toilet for my wife who wants it so bad. Incidentally, that's what Kim asked for Christmas. I just want a new toilet. That's all I want. Sometimes, sometimes it means going, sacrificing your vacation time to go on a mission trip. You know, in, in, instead of going to Disney World, like Deb and Jeff are, maybe they should go to Mexico. <laughs> but some, sometimes it means giving up to get. Jesus said, if you want to... Save your life. If you want me to transform your life, you have to be willing to give it up, to lose it first. And that's what the deeper layer, the second layer of that says that in order for me to gain eternal life, I need to lose my life first. I need to give it up. You know, God cannot save me. God cannot transform me. God cannot reconcile me to him if I am reluctant or if, if I cannot agree to giving him my life to begin with. And so when I lose my life, when I forfeit it to him, he just gives it right back. We're not saving ourselves. Of course, he saves us. But we're, you know, figuratively, we're saving our life eternally because we are willing to give it up. And that's what Jesus meant here. You know, following the leader is hard. It's not natural. I mean, God, just, God intended it to be natural. He wanted it to be natural. But because of our sinful nature, it's not. It's hard. He knows that's hard. We know that's hard. But it doesn't give an, ex- as an out to trying. God wants so badly. Fortunately, he is a patient, kind, and loving God. And the thing that he wants most is to reconcile himself to us and to bring his children back into a right-side-up relationship with him. And all we have to do is ask, ask. All we have to do is seek his face and say, I want to follow you. And so this morning I want to, to just pray with one another, with you, and um, as we bow our heads and, and you want to just pray to yourself, whatever that looks like for you, but just to ask God, God, somehow can you make me right side up today? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your lesson today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your parables and, and making it easy. Sometimes it's easy for us to, to kind of get it. God, sometimes it seems like calculus to us and it's hard for us to figure out. But, but God, we have faith in you that you can show us how to do it. Lord, today I want to give up my life to you. And whether that means I need to sacrifice football or sacrifice whatever, Lord, I want to do that. I want to tell you this morning that I want to be more like you. I want to follow your son. Let him be the leader. Let me be the follower. And you need to show me how to do that, Lord, because it's really, really hard. I ask that in your name this morning. I trust you. I honor you. And I lift up your name at work and at play and at my relationships. And it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.
Well, good morning. Have an awesome day.